Once again, I will be reading Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 59, but I'll be dealing with the second half of the passage, the final two paragraphs uh, from verses 54 to 59. So Luke chapter 12, 49 to 59, but with special note on verses 40, sorry, 54 to 59. Luke 12, 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be a scorching heat, and it happened. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of sky and earth, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer. The officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you'll never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, Lord, we see once again the command to judge. And Lord, we acknowledge that we do not have any ability to judge in and of ourselves, that we must rely on your holy word, the the only standard of right and righteousness. We must rely on your Holy Spirit to guide us into your truth. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts as we attend to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would guide our thinking and guide our words and guide our actions by your word. We pray that you'd help us, Lord, to judge rightly. To judge what is going on around us rightly. To judge ourselves rightly. Lord, to judge you what you came to do rightly. We ask all of this for Christ's sake, the building of your church, the glory of your name. Amen. Well, we joke about meteorologists and their inaccuracy with their forecasts. Now, I've lived in, in many places, in many countries, But I have never lived anywhere where the weather forecasts are as inaccurate as they are here in Kelowna. Maybe it's the fact that we live in a valley bottom surrounded by mountains. 
Maybe that's why the forecast is, is so often wrong. I'm not a meteorologist, so I really don't know why the forecast seems to be wrong as often as it is right. The meteorologist Bob Harris once said that the weatherman is society's scapegoat. He comes in on after the news and he's comic relief. He says the management of some stations think that anything that will get you higher ratings without breaking the law is worth doing. Well, you may know the name of Bob Harris. He was a nationally syndicated weatherman in the United States in the 1980s. Bob Harris broke the law. He was interested in meteorology from a young age, and even though he had studied mathematics and physics and geology at three different universities, he never managed to get a degree. But nonetheless, he continued to pursue his dream of being a meteorologist. So he, he, he contacted a CBS affiliate in New York City, introducing himself as having a PhD from Columbia University. Well, he was hired, and his career flourished. He became known as Dr. Bob. I wonder if there was just a tinge of guilt every time he heard those words, Dr. Bob, knowing that Dr. Bob wasn't really a doctor. But Dr. Bob, as he was so called, became a consulting meteorologist for the New York Times and even for Major League Baseball. But years later, an anonymous call to the television station suggested that they check his academic credentials. And thus his lie was exposed. The story spread and Bob Harris was interviewed on the Today Show, the Tomorrow Show, and if there was a day after show, he would have been interviewed on that as well. He was interviewed by People Magazine. And he, he says that, that this, this whole ordeal of, of what he went through, the exposure of his lie, really was, was a, a major factor in, that led to his divorce. But amazingly, he was not fired by the baseball commissioner. And in fact, he got a new job with another television station in New York City, and his popularity spread even, even more after this event. But even still, he said, I took a shortcut that turned out to be the long way around, and one day the bill came due. I'll be sorry as long as I'm alive. So Bob Harris was one weatherman who made the wrong forecast. He made the wrong judgment, and it seems that, at least in one sense, he, he learned from his error. Well, last week we saw that, that making right judgments is of paramount importance. And I explained that this, the, this section here from verses 49 to 59 at the end of chapter 12 is not just three unconnected paragraphs that Luke tacks on at the end of Luke 12 that this passage follows in the same theme that Jesus has been teaching through all the way through chapter 12, even back to chapter 11. The necessity of responding rightly to God through faith in Jesus Christ because of coming judgment. The necessity of responding rightly to God through faith in Jesus Christ because of coming judgment. That's the theme throughout this, this whole passage. We must judge rightly ourselves or we will be judged guilty by God. We must judge rightly ourselves or be judged guilty by God. Now this passage, verses 49 to 59, 
again, speaks of three interrelated spheres of judgment. Verses 49 to 53, judging the earth. Verses 54 to 56, judging the times. And then in 57 to 59, judging yourself. We looked at verses 49 to 53 last week, how Jesus came to bring fire on earth. And that fire represented judgment. This this fire or this judgment takes place in three forms. The fire of the cross, the fire of division, and the fire of purification. The fire of the cross, if you remember, means judgment. Judgment on unbelief. Judgment on rebellion. God must judge sin. God must pour out his holy wrath on every sin and on every sinner. Or God ceases to be just. So Jesus came to bring judgment on earth. However, in his first incarnation, this was not the judgment that he poured out on others. This was the judgment that he himself received as God's judgment was poured out on him. As he was punished for the sins of his people, for the elect, for his bride. And Jesus was zealous to accomplish that work despite the fact that it came at massive personal cost. Not just a physical pain, but of spiritual, of spiritual agony. As he became the sin bearer, as, as the, the father poured out his wrath on him, turned his face away from him. We also saw that Jesus came to bring the fire of division. Jesus said that he did not come to bring peace in, in Matthew, but not peace, but a sword. Now, now of course, there is, there is a major sense of which Jesus did come to bring peace. Jesus came to bring peace between God and people, and between the people who have peace with God. But Jesus' coming also meant that there would be division. Division between the people who are at peace with God and the people who are at enmity, at war with God. And since Jesus has broken down the, the wall of hostility between us and God, he has also broken down the, the wall of hostility between us and each other, between our brothers and our sisters in Christ. We need to fight to be at peace with our brothers and sisters. You need to fight not them, but yourself and the sinful and selfish tendencies that are within you to make you focus on the things that divide you rather than Christ who unites you. This is not a, a battle that takes place outside of you. This is a battle that takes place inside you, in your heart. But Jesus' coming does mean that there will be a sword of division between us and those who are divided from Christ, even among our own family. But as I warned last week, be careful that this division is not caused by you being hostile or rude to unbelievers, but because of the gospel. Let the offense be Christ and the gospel, not you. Finally, we saw last week that Jesus came to bring the fire of purification. This is the, from the same verses. But if you find yourself rejected by others because of you identify with Christ, take heart. God is using it to sanctify you. Those who experience that kind of division, even from their loved ones, will be made more like Jesus. They'll be sanctified through the pain of that. They will press into Christ. They'll press into their brothers and sisters in Christ. And many of us are experiencing that as there is estrangement from our families because of Christ. And in the process, you'll be made more like Christ. 
but do not seek the friendship of the world, or you will become more like the world. And if taken to its end, it may even prove that you actually are the world. Whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. In 4.4. So that's by way of review from, from verses 49 to 53. But now in verses 54 to 59, Jesus continues in this theme of right judgment. So first of all, verses 4, uh, 54 to 56, judging the time. Jesus here uses two meteorological phenomena to point out the hypocrisy of the crowd. They saw a, a cloud rising in the west, and they knew that it meant rain. The wet, moist air mass from that blew in from the Mediterranean Sea would, would bring rain with it. But a wind from the south, on the other hand, brought the hot, dry air from the desert, and that meant a scorching heat was coming. You don't have to be a, a meteorologist, whether a real meteorologist or a pretend meteorologist, to know how to read the weather. When I was, I was a boy, my, my grandmother in Newfoundland, reflecting on my family's seafaring heritage, told me two little rhymes about reading the weather. Red skies at night, sailors delight. Red skies at morning, sailors take warning. And I, I've seen that happen many times here. When there's a, a, a red sky at sunrise, it means that we're going to have rainy or stormy weather through the day. It's even more pronounced if, you, if you're near the ocean. Similarly, my grandmother told me cotton balls and mare's tails make mighty ships carry lofty sails. I've seen that too. When you see clouds up in the sky that look like small balls of cotton or, or look like, like long horses' tails, it means that, the, that later on that day or the next day it's going to be windy. Well, it's one thing to observe the weather, but it's quite another to observe signs of the time. These people, this crowd to whom Jesus was speaking, he says, are hypocrites. It's not just Bob Harris who could judge the weather, but not judge what was important. I wonder, is this, is this us too? Do we know how to judge what is most important? Do we have worldly success, but spiritual bankruptcy? Do we have the, the right external behavior, but a wrong heart? Do we have the right doctrine, but lack love? And so do we're doing essentially the same thing. We're, we're, we're judging things that are, are much less important correctly, but being wrong on what is most important. These hypocrites knew how to interpret the weather, but not the word of God. Now, the word that's translated interpret here means to essentially to judge or, or make a critical examination of something to determine genuineness, to, to put it to the test, to examine, to prove, and to approve. These people felt that it was important to judge the signs of the weather, but they could not be bothered to judge the signs of the times. They found the weather important enough that they studied it, but they were blind to spiritual things. I wonder which is more important. The weather or what is spiritual and, and what is eternal. Instead, Jesus charges them with hypocrisy. Whereas in chapter 11, the charge of hypocrisy was leveled against the religious rulers, the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. 
And now it's leveled against the crowds. They can judge nature, but they cannot judge the nature of Jesus' ministry. He's saying, how can you focus on the weather, but not know whether your assessment of me is right? A person can examine environmental conditions and make correct judgments. That person should be able to examine Jesus' ministry and make correct judgments as to who he is and what he came to do. How blind would somebody have had to be in, in those days to witness the miracles of Jesus, to hear the teaching of Jesus for themselves? To reject him as a fraud. To reject him as a false teacher. Brothers and sisters, we have more. We have the testimony of God's word. We have the whole canon of Scripture. Will we judge rightly who Jesus is and what he came to do? Will eternity, will eternity depend on Theologian J. Barton Payne found 574 verses in the Old Testament that point directly to the person and work of Christ. 574 verses. But the reality is the entire Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. The entirety of it. From the promised seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head to the, the skins of the first animal sacrifices that, that God sacrifices in order to clothe Adam and Eve the whole priestly and sacrificial system. To the prophets that, that pointed to the prophet like Moses, to whom the people would listen. Pointed to the ministry of the word of God, the Jesus Christ, the eternal logos of God. To the kings that point to the king of kings, King David's greater son. You can look at the covenant and all of the covenants that point to the new covenant in Christ's blood. You can look at people, Adam and Abel and Abraham and, and Jacob and Judah and Joseph and Deborah and David and Daniel. All of them point to Jesus. You can look to the tabernacle and the temple and, and all of the temple furnishings. Without resorting to allegory, you, you can see that Jesus is always there in the Bible in shadows and types, in specific promises, in directly fulfilled prophecy. The story of redemption is woven all the way through the Old Testament and it all points to Jesus Christ. So judge rightly. Judge Jesus and judge Jesus' ministry biblically according to the whole canon of God's Word. In chapter 11, Jesus called that generation an evil generation because they sought signs but couldn't read the signs. No sign, he said, would be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, Jesus is the sign. and They are not satisfied. They can't judge the meaning of the sign, even though the sign was right there before their eyes. They're hypocrites. Because, as William Henderson explains, 
they pay far more attention to constantly changing weather conditions than to events that usher in epoch-making historical changes. The implication of this is not just a matter of inability, but unwillingness that comes from hard-heartedness and spiritual blindness. They couldn't tell time. As you prepare for Kezia and Titus' wedding on Friday, it's, it's been difficult to coordinate with family and friends all over the world and, and many different time zones. There's, there's people uh, in Eastern Canada, Western Canada, there's people in India and people in the Middle East. And compound that with daylight savings. And it's, it's difficult to, to try to figure it out. But, but can you tell time? I'm not just talking about but your watch or your, your iPhone, can you tell time? Now, of course, we have the superlative privilege of living as we do after the events of the Gospels, after the life and, and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, after the ministry of the apostles, after the closing of the canon. We have the blessing of having the whole Bible to read and to study. But can you tell time? Of course, we can look back at these things with, with 2020 hindsight, but how's your foresight? Are you watching for the return of Christ? Can you judge the signs of these times? Or are you blinded like these, like those, those Jews looking at the weather instead of looking for Jesus? Now, of course. We can't know the day or the hour of Jesus' return. But as we heard back in Luke 11, 35 and 36, it's 12, 35 36, that, that the servants must be watching for the master's return. We must be dressed and we must be ready for action. We must keep our lamps burning. We must be praying for Christ's return and looking for Christ's return. Now, there will be wars and, and rumors of wars and, and earthquakes in diverse places, but do not be alarmed. The end is not yet, but it might be soon. You know, when I was a child, and a young teenager, I was, I was afraid of nuclear war. I'd have repeated, I think it has something to do with, with having to watch the movie the, the day after in socials class, and, but I, I would wake up with nightmares as I'd open our front door and, and see mushroom clouds on the horizon. It was a repeated nightmare for me. And maybe some children in our, in our congregation might, might, be fear, might be fearful of, of a coming pandemic, one that is, is, is of, of plague proportions. But whether it's nuclear war or, or a, a massive global pandemic, fear not, because we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. And so we need to, to, to judge the times. And now I'm not talking about, about having the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. I remember doing that, as I mentioned previously, in a, as a young Christian, religiously, every Sunday evening, watching Jack Van Impey and his wife, Rexella. And they did that. They had the Bible in one hand and a, and a newspaper in the other. And they were talking about how the, the events of the past week meant that Jesus' return was, was coming very, very soon. And one theme that was common was, was the, 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 the rise of the one-world church. 
That's from their particular system they were looking at, and and they would, and, and as they would teach the, the Roman Catholic Church, it would say is the is the, the one world church that the Roman Catholic Church is is the whore of Babylon. Well, I find it horribly ironic that that Jack Van Impe and his wife have now turned to Catholicism. They've actually become Roman Catholic. But I'm not talking about that. I'm not not talking about the the, the kooky stuff. I'm talking about eagerly looking for Jesus. I'm talking about anticipating, praying for his return. I'm talking about watching governments and, and watching what's, what's going on around the world, watching the rise in immorality. And saying, this could be it. This could be the coming of Jesus. And it, it might be soon. It might be today. Or it might not be for another 2,000 years. The church has been expecting eagerly the, the imminent return of Christ ever since very soon after the ascension of Christ. And we should be like them. We should, we should also be anticipating, thinking, wow, Jesus, you might be coming back soon. Come, Lord Jesus. We look around and we watch and we see. We have to have our eyes open. And, and you know, one of the things that, that I see that really makes me wonder is the, the rise in apostasy in the visible church. Now, yes, I know there have been times of, of virtually global apostasy in the past as the, the world was, was in the grips of Roman Catholicism, the, the Western world in the grips of, of Roman Catholicism. But, but as I've traveled around the world, I've seen that the rise of the so-called word faith movement and the new apostolic reformation, it's rampant in our own city. It's rampant all over the world. Now again, I don't know if this is the great apostasy, but it is a great apostasy. We need to watch and pray. We this this might not be it, but we need to watch and pray. Yes, pray that the Lord will return, but but also pray that we would be prepared. We'll be ready for the Lord's return. We'll be prepared in such a way that that as things are very likely to get more difficult for us, that we will respond in a Christ-like way. Yes, with steadfastness, but also with meekness and humility. There are ominous cumulonimbus clouds on the horizon, battened down the hatches for the coming storm. It may come in your lifetime, it may come in your children's lifetime, it may not come for another 2,000 years, but it will come. The storm will come. The church in every era and every age must watch what is taking place and compare it with the predictions of unfulfilled prophecy. Don't be blind to what is going on around you. Pray that your eyes will be open and that you will be ready at the return of Christ. We must judge the implications of Christ's coming rightly or we will be judged by God. We must also judge the implications of Christ's return Rightly, sorry, we must, we must judge the implication personally of Christ's return, or we will be judged by God. The implications of Christ's return are not just, are not just in abstract forms. They're not just for people out there, they are for us. We need to think about what it will mean for us when the Lord returns. That will you be among the number when the saints go marching in? That will will you be one of those for whom 
Christ says, well done, good and faithful servant. Or will you be one of those who is, is cowering and, and praying for the rocks and, and hills to fall on you, to hide you from the wrath of the Lamb? You must judge the times rightly, and you must judge yourself rightly. So then with the time that we have left, let's look at verses 57 to 59, judging yourself. Now Jesus asked the crowd, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Those who do not judge the times will miss what is going on around them, and they will miss what is going on inside of them. Those who do not view Jesus rightly will never view themselves rightly. But it's not here just, it's not just judge for yourself, but it is judge yourself. Judge yourself. Know that according to God's standard of judgment, you are wrong. Know your guilt before God. So Jesus tells another parable. He tells this one in the Sermon on the Mount as well, in Matthew 5, verses 25 and 26. The picture is, a, is of a man who has been accused by another. And so he says in, in verse 58, and as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. The guilt that's incurred here is, is actually a financial debt. This is a, a civil legal dispute. He's saying that, that, that as you go to court with your accuser, acknowledge that the case before you is airtight, that you are guilty. Now just stop for a moment and think about your sins, not, not even the ones of the past. Think about the sins that you have committed in the last week. Every sin of commission. Every time you did what you should not have done, every lie, every slander, every uncharitable thought, every lustful glance, every selfish act, every complaint. But it's not just every sin of commission, but also every sin of omission. Every time you didn't do what you should have done. Every time you didn't share the gospel when you could have. Every time you didn't serve someone that needed help. Every time you didn't give thanks to God. Every time you didn't worship God and live for the glory of God. In fact, every time you did not love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, you were incurring guilt on yourself. What measure of guilt? Think of the servant's 10,000 talent debt from Matthew 18. You, incur, you have incurred a debt like that today already. One talent was the equivalent of about two years' wages for a laborer. And this, this servant owed 10,000 talents. And so even if this servant were to pour all of his income towards paying off his debt, it would take 20,000 years. The time for debt collection is coming quickly. Your court date might be today. The day of judgment might be today. But even if it isn't the day of judgment today, 
Your day before the judge might come today. He might call you before the bench today. There's no guarantee that you will make it to midnight alive. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to take your chances in court and hope the judge will forget your record? Nope. This judge is omniscient. Psalm 139, 1-3. Are you going to hope that the judge will have mercy and overlook some of the facts of your case? Nope, this judge is just. He cannot let any crime go unpunished, any debt go unpaid. He who justifies the wicked is a great abomination. Proverbs 17, 15. Are you going to hope that that this judge will be like the, the kind judge on from caught in providence. That for your traffic offenses, he will, will find a reason to like you and let you off. Nope. Unbeliever, God is opposed to you. He hates all evildoers. Psalm 5.5. 5. Are you going to hope that this judge will let you off with, with time off for good behavior? Nope. According to his just standards, you have no good behavior. You've never done anything good. All of your righteousness as adds filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Are you going to hope that this judge will, will somehow take your side against your accuser? No, because your accuser is his holy moral law. The law condemns you. Romans 2, 27. Are you going to hope in a good lawyer? Nope. He who has his own, so he who has his own lawyer has, has a fool for a client. Who can argue the case of man with God? Job 16.21. Your only hope is to settle out of court. Deal with your accuser on the way. You need to deal with your debt before you get there. You need to settle with your accuser now. You'd better seek pardon before your dying day or before judgment day. It is better to confess your sin and to seek his forgiveness now. It is better to make whatever restitution is necessary now because you do not want to end up in debtor's prison. The time for debt collecting is coming. You don't owe money. You owe obedience. You owe righteousness. You owe worship. And even if your behavior was, was perfect from now on, you would never be able to pay off your debt down to the last penny. You'll never get out until you've paid the very last penny. You need to judge yourself now. You need to judge yourself according to God's word now. There is no appeal before God's court. There is no higher court. There is no mercy for those who stand condemned. There is no parole. There is no time off for good behavior. Judges in this world might find you guilty or they might find you not guilty. You may judge yourself as guilty or not guilty, but God's court is what matters. Disgraced meteorologist Bob Harris said that, that he took a shortcut that turned to be, out to be the long way around. And one day the bill came due and he said, I'll be sorry as long as I live. Now get what he's saying here. The, the bill came due. I get that he regretted this. 
But unless he repented and turned to Christ, the balance of that sin and a lifetime of sin is still on his record. Again, I don't know if he actually repented. I know he did experience profound regret. But even the world experiences regret. The, the Bible calls that worldly sorrow that leads to death. Bob Harris judged wrongly and came up under the judgment of society. But there is another judgment that is coming and that the judgment of society, the fickle judgment of society that will love you one day and turf you out the next. It's nothing but the judgment of the Holy God. Bob Harris judged his course of action as the right thing to do in that moment. Now there was immediate payoff. Sin often does have immediate payoff, immediate pleasure. That's one of the main reasons people sin, because they enjoy it. There might be immediate pleasure, but there are eternal consequences. There is eternal suffering for sin. That's your repentance, put your faith in Jesus Christ. What things have you done in your life that seemed like a good idea at the time? Maybe things that you have regretted for your whole life. Have you repented? Have you settled with your accuser? Have you settled out of court? We must judge ourselves rightly. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32 says, But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So Christians judge themselves according to God's word and and God will discipline us, not punish us, but the Christian, their punishment was put on Christ. He will discipline us as a father disciplines his son or his daughter. He sanctifies to help us to overcome sin. Now you have an accuser. Christian, you have an accuser. The one who was your tempter becomes your accuser. And your flesh conspires with your accuser to drag you more deeply into sin. If you are settled with God in a court through Jesus Christ, God is no longer your accuser. God is no longer your accuser. Be careful not to act as the accuser of your brothers and sisters. Now I need to have a word here, particularly with those who have sensitive consciences. There are some who are truly regenerate, who will hear something like this about judging yourself and, and, and they will feel nothing but condemnation. And they will feel guilty for things that they have already repented of. Well, the answer is the same for you as it is for the, the person who is not yet a Christian. It's turn to Jesus Christ. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust in your heart's ability to judge. Judge yourself according to the word of God. 1 John 3.20 If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. 
God is greater than your heart. So yes, we need to be careful to judge ourselves, but the ultimate question is what is God's judgment of you? What is God's judgment of you? 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord who comes, who will bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purpose of the heart, that each one will receive his condemnation from God. No, that is not what it says. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Commendation, not condemnation. What is God's judgment of you? Let me ask the same question a different way. Who is your advocate? Again, the person who has himself for a lawyer has a fool for a client. Who is your lawyer before the holy judgment seat of God? Who is your advocate? There's only one advocate who can stand between you and God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is advocating for you. He's advocating for you before the Holy God. So we must judge ourselves rightly. We must understand the personal implications of Christ rightly. You must understand the personal implications of, of the coming of Christ in his first incarnation and at his return. If we do not judge these things correctly, if we do not judge Jesus correctly, we will be judged by God. So then, what is God's judgment of you? Are you standing there naked and exposed before the holiness of God, trying to cover yourself like Adam and Eve with fig leaves? Knowing your guilt and knowing that the the gaze of the omniscient God is upon you, are you even now exposed? Are you feeling the, the, the condemnation of God because you are not in Christ? What is God's judgment of you? Turn to Jesus Christ. Independence and faith. You are not righteous. You have never been righteous. But if you are in Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, credited to your account. That is half of the gospel. What is God's judgment of you? If you are in Christ, you're your God's judgment of you is not guilty because your guilt was put on Christ because he bore the guilt that that you committed every sin that you ever committed your life of sin was credited to the account of Jesus so in if you are in Christ that God's judgment of you before his almighty judgment seat is not guilty but more than that More than that, God's judgment of you is not just not guilty. If you are in Christ, brother, sister, if you are in Christ, God's judgment of you is righteous. 
God's judgment of you is righteous because all of the good works of Christ, all of the active and passive obedience of Christ is credited to your account. His perfect record of obedience is credited to you. So on that day of judgment, God will look at you and see His Son. That is God's judgment of you if you are in Christ. We need to get the gospel right. We need to judge the gospel correctly. As Tom Askell says, getting the gospel right is crucial. It is a matter of spiritual life and death. If you miss this, it does not matter what you get because you will miss God. Judge rightly for your eternity is at stake. And trust yourself to God's judgment. As Abraham negotiated with God for Lot in Sodom, Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect and all his ways are justice. The God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. As you entrust yourself to him, the one who was your accuser, the one who, who held you in contempt of court, now judges you not guilty. Now judges you righteous. So the question remains, have you judged rightly? Have you correctly understood who Jesus is and the nature of his mission, both at his first incarnation and at his return? Have you understood who you are before him? Are you with him? Or are you without him? Are you following Jesus? Now there is a cost to following Jesus. There is pain involved in following Jesus. But the alternative, going to debtor's prison, separated from God and separated from all that is good, is infinitely worse. And trust yourself to Jesus Christ. Come under the favor. Come under the love and the blessing of the judge who came down from the bench and took the sentence of death upon himself. And so doing, the Holy God becomes our Father in heaven. And God the Son becomes our brother our Savior, our Advocate. The Holy Spirit empowers us to walk in obedience, to grow in sanctification. Not just giving us new hearts, but enables us to walk, enables us to walk in the reality of the gospel, bringing God's word to bear in our hearts. We've become at one with the triune God. The only alternative is to be separated from Him for all eternity. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that as we consider this passage, that you would help us all to judge rightly according to your word. Help us all to judge Jesus rightly, His life and His mission. Help us all to judge ourselves rightly before your holy standard of righteousness 
that all of us, through the power of your Spirit, might be regenerated and walking in repentance and faith. For the glory of your name and for the building of your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.